This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Thank you, guys. Open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and one of the things that Jesus talks about in this last section of the ninth chapter of Mark is, is true greatness, which in God's eyes is very different from greatness in the eyes of the world. And we're going to talk about that and a couple of more things as we look at Mark chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 30 through fifty. Today, Mark 9 and verses 30 through 50, we're going to cover every single verse as we walk through today. And so I'm not going to, I'm not going to read it up front like I typically do. We're just going to kind of walk through the text this morning. Let's pray together, though, as we prepare to do that. Father, thank you so much for this time together as the body of Christ gathers. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that by the power of your spirit, that your word speaks to us. And we pray that you would speak to us on this day by your spirit, through the power of your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I remember uh, vividly exactly what I was doing 15 years ago today at this time. Uh, I had been working on a sermon that morning, had been, been studying, and uh, at some point during the morning, the secretary came down the hall, she said, Pastor, you know, something's happening in New York that you might want to be aware of. And so I remember c- clicking on, uh, online and looking, and at that point, the news was that a small private plane had hit one of the towers, and so I thought, you know, probably just a fluke, and I went back to studying, and after a period of time, she, she came back again, and she said, this is more than what they were originally thinking, it's really serious, and I, I just thought, you know, I, as a pastor especially, I mean, I need to know what's happening, and so I, I went home and cut on the TV, it was just about 10 o'clock, and I hadn't cut on the TV, it hadn't even been five minutes when the first tower fell. And I'll never forget that moment as long as I live just watching that, that tower fall. And I knew instantly that the world had changed. I knew that our nation was this was terrorism and that our nation was going to be at war. And the next thing that I thought about was the fact that back at the church, there was a women's Bible study that was going on, and I knew that probably 90% of those ladies had husbands who were active duty in the military. So I went back up to church and went into the, the room where they were having the study and shared with them uh, what was happening because I knew that their lives personally had changed, their, the, the life of their families had, had changed in that moment because we were a nation at war. It was wartime. But you know what? Our ultimate war and our ultimate enemy is really spiritual. 
The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 10 and following, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And wartime requires a different mentality. And as those who are engaged in a spiritual war, our concept of certain things needs to change along with it. And the first thing that we need here is a, is a wartime concept of what greatness is. Wartime greatness. We see at beginning in verse 30 that they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. So what's happening here? Jesus has been in the north, up in Caesarea, Philippi. And so now they have come south again, back home, back to Galilee. But they're not going to be staying long. They're only going to be passing through. Why? Because they're headed to Jerusalem. Headed to the passion, to the cross, the resurrection. And Jesus knows this. And Jesus knows that, that, that he cannot be distracted or delayed. And so they don't let the crowds even know that they're there. They're only passing through. And Jesus also doesn't want the crowds to know because he wants to spend this time pouring into the disciples and preparing them for what he knows is coming and so we see in verses 31 and 32, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now we've seen over the past uh, chapters, uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9 especially, that Jesus has become increasingly direct with his disciples and telling them what is going to happen. But what we've also seen is that they are very, very slow to accept it. And they are still holding out hope that Jesus is going to, to ride into Jerusalem uh, as a, a conquering political king, kick out the Romans from their nation, and, and they have hopes that they, his disciples, are going to, uh, to reign alongside him in the king's court. And that's what leads to the argument that takes place on the road. Verses 33 and, and 34. And when, they came, when they, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? And we know from other Gospels, they were really arguing along the way. Verse 34, But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Because of our sinful nature, we have a preoccupation with status and power and rank in the eyes of others. And our definition of what greatness is, is so warped and distorted that Jesus has to jolt us back to what true greatness is all about. 
And in verse 35, he gives us that jolt. It says in verse 35 that he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. Now Jesus here doesn't repudiate the concept of greatness, but he redefines it. In first century Judaism, in which these guys have been raised, status and rank were a big part of the ordering of their society. It determined kind of where you sat at meals and in the synagogue and, and, and places like that. And so there was a preoccupation with status and rank. In the Greco-Roman world of the first century, the concept of servanthood was just looked down upon and despised. And in our culture today, and particularly in American culture, listen, people are in a frantic race to get to the top. But Jesus says if you really want to be great in God's eyes, it ought not to be a race to the top. It ought to be a race to the bottom. Serving others. Now, Jesus reinforces this, and we're going to see it again in, in, in chapter 10 and verses 43 and following. He says there, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, to illustrate what he's saying Jesus scoops up a little kid who was there in the room. And he says in verses 36 and 37, says he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Now to fully understand the power of this illustration, we need to understand something about the way that children were regarded in the first century, because it, was, it is very different from the way kids are regarded in our 21st century American culture today. We live in a culture where kids are, are valued. Uh, kids, if they're growing up in loving families, uh, they're very doted upon and sometimes uh, catered to. And, and sometimes in American culture, that can be taken to an unhealthy extreme. It's almost like in some uh, homes, the kids are running the house, okay, in, in America. But in, in, in the first century world, that was not the case. Kids were, they were valued, but they were very much kept down, kind of kept in their place. Kids were looked upon as people who just haven't yet arrived. So, you know, be seen and not heard, you know, that, that kind of a thing. And so in choosing a, a little child, Jesus finds an appropriate illustration of the lowly, the least of these. And so what Jesus is saying here is be like me in receiving and in reaching out to the lowly, the least of these. And we have seen this happening over and over again in Mark, haven't we? We see Jesus constantly 
reaching out to and receiving who? The outcast, the despised, the weak, the vulnerable, the lowly, the least of these. But see, if we are concerned with our rank and our status, who are we going to be preoccupied with reaching out to and receiving? Those who can help us up the next rung of the ladder. So to put this very practically, what would this mean? It would mean, like for instance, if you're a student, it would mean that you know, in, in, in school or in whatever context you find yourself in, it would mean that instead of just trying to gravitate towards those who are, are perceived as cool, that you have your eye out for those that are maybe not perceived as cool. Maybe kids who are off to themselves, maybe lonely, maybe especially in need of love, from a Christ follower like you, if you are an adult in your place of, of work, it would mean that you would want to be known as a Christian as maybe the most servant-hearted person among the people that you work with. It would mean in the context of the family that as spouses that we're seeking to first be servants of one another rather than sitting back and waiting to be served. And it would mean that in the context of the church, that we're not so much looking for a church that's going to have everything laid out on silver platter and just, you know, lots of glitzy programs and, and just all ready to serve us and, you know, everybody's just like me. But we're looking for a church where we're going to be seriously equipped in the Word of God to serve others. Now, there's a great irony really in this and the irony is that we don't find fulfillment by acting selfishly we don't jesus tells us in matthew 10 and verse 39 he says there whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it one of the ways that we lose our lives and find our lives, find true fulfillment, is reorienting our lives away from self to others. And particularly toward the lowly. Romans chapter 12 and verse 16, Paul says there, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Dr. James Edwards, in commenting on that verse, says this, so cool. The humblest act of kindness sets off a chain reaction that shakes heaven itself. For whatever is done to the little and the least is done to Jesus. And whatever is done to Jesus is done to God. Wartime greatness. It's about servanthood. Second, wartime unity. Wartime unity. Verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, 
We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. You see a problem there with that last word? The issue is not whether or not they're following us, right? The issue is whether or not they were following Jesus. Verses 39 through 41. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You know, one of the really cool things about missions and and kind of just seeing seeing a, a kind of a broader kingdom perspective is that you see that the kingdom of God is a lot bigger than our, our tribe. You know, when you're in a country that is 99% Muslim, let me tell you that the missionaries there understand that some of the differences among gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches in the States um, aren't real big when you're, when you're in that kind of a context, right? You understand very clearly that Bible-believing, gospel-preaching believers really are on the, the same team. You know, speaking of team, I don't know if you heard about this or not, the, the, there, the other day there was a, a, a picture for the Chicago White Sox baseball team. And on this particular day, the team, the White Sox, were supposed to wear their throwback uniforms. Well, this guy didn't want to wear the throwback uniform. And so what he did was, during batting practice, he went in and he took scissors and cut up his uniform. Because he didn't want to wear it. He didn't want to pitch in it. And not only did he cut up his own uniform, he cut up the uniforms of every member of the team. So it would be impossible to, to wear the uniforms. You know, if, if they wanted to pay me $15 million a year like this guy to pitch in the major leagues, I think I'd be willing to dress up like you know Chewbacca from Star Wars or something if they, if they, if they wanted me to. But, but, but look, I mean, this guy obviously had a lot to learn about putting aside personal preferences for the sake of the team. We're part of a way more significant team Okay, than a baseball team. Okay, with souls are at stake. And so, listen, we've got to put aside, we've got anything that's, you know, personal preferences, you know, petty differences, things like that. Those things have to go. This is wartime. It's time to, to come together for something higher. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. Wartime unity. Third, wartime holiness. Wartime holiness. Verse 42. What Jesus says, whatever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. One time I was on a mission trip in, in Morocco and we were trekking through the reef mountains and I'll never forget this moment. We came up on a, the crest of a hill, and I looked down, and there was a, a, a mule that had a harness, and, and, the, and the mule was, was pulling 
a millstone, just like thousands of years ago, <laughs> pulling this millstone around and grinding grain. You know, looking at that millstone, if a, imagine something like that, this massive stone put around your neck. If, if that were put around somebody's neck and they were thrown into the sea, it would be a very quick trip to the bottom. This is a sobering warning because all of us have influence on other people. What kind of influence do we have? In verses 43 through 48, Jesus says, If your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now Jesus is obviously using hyperbole here to make a point. And the point is, deal ruthlessly with sin. Don't play around with it. Deal ruthlessly with it. You know, the, the great Puritan uh, pastor and theologian John Owen said this, Do not treat sin as a naughty child, but loved. Some of us treat sin just like that. You know, if, if as parents, when one of our children is naughty, we still love them. That's appropriate, right? For loving parents, yeah, they're naughty, but we, we still love them. We discipline them, but we still love them. That's not appropriate when it comes to sin. It's not appropriate to, to, to love sin. We're to hate sin. We are to make war on sin. It is not your friend. It wants to take you down. And, and, and we are in a battle. We are, to, we are to hate sin and make war on it and deal ruthlessly with it. What stands in the way of you being totally surrendered and obedient to God today? It needs to go. And even if it's not sin, even if it's a good thing that has become an idol in your life, it needs to go. Verses 49 and 50. Jesus says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about salt. And he says, You're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. And he's making that point here, but he's also making another point that doesn't come up in the Sermon on the Mount, and especially when he talks about the fact in verse 49 that we'll be salted with fire. What's, what's he talking about there? Jesus is probably making an allusion that they would have understood, and that was an allusion to the sacrifices that were made in the temple because there were two things that were true 
about every one of those sacrifices. One is that they were to be seasoned with salt, and the other is that they were to be totally consumed by the fire. And see, what Jesus is saying here is that discipleship lays a total claim on our lives. We are to be living sacrifices. Paul says in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We offer ourselves, the, the totality of ourselves, as living sacrifices because Jesus died as a sacrifice for us. So, in laying down our selfishness and living as servants to others, in laying down our personal preferences and living in unity with others, in laying down our sin and pursuing holiness, we are showing our allegiance to and our love for the one who laid down his life for us. Let's pray together. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, Father, we, we come again to the table that reminds us of your sacrifice for us. We pray that you would use this as a means of speaking to our hearts of drawing us closer to you. As we just continue to reflect before the Lord, you know, one of the things that the Bible tells us is that this should be a time of self-examination when we come to the Lord's table. First of all, do you know Christ? Have you repented of your sin and self and turned to Jesus and trusted Him as your Savior and King? It's time to reflect on, on the issue of, 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 of our fellowship with God as, as Christians. Is there anything in your life that is hindering your fellowship with God or with another Christian today? It's a time of, of examination and reflection as we prepare to, to come to the Lord's table. Father, we pray that you would speak to us now through this special supper that you ordained. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were here today as one who knows him, as one who is, has turned from sin and self and placed your trust in Christ alone, Savior and Lord, then, then he invites you to be a part of this special supper that he ordained. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. 
Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. You are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.